A few weeks ago, I preached a sermon about the artificial intelligence of the near future titled, uh, Immigrants Aren't Coming for Your Jobs, Robots Are. My sermon next Sunday, as I said, will be on Malthus, Earth Day, and global population, wrestling with the implications of our human population having septupled, increased sevenfold in a mere two centuries, from around one billion in 1800 to more than seven billion today. This morning, I am preaching about human rights in theory and in practice. I planned these three sermons in addition to a fourth sermon uh, forthcoming in June on utopianism then and now as an opportunity to reflect um, collectively kind of a sermon series on building the world we dream about and what are the factors that we need to consider if we are to take that goal seriously. It's a beautiful vision. It's sometimes called liberal internationalism, and it is in stark contrast, we should be honest, to a reactionary nativism that chants build that wall. But beautiful vision or not, I don't want us to be naive about what it would mean to pursue um, rigorously that high goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for an elite few, but for all. To do that in a world buffeted increasingly by a rise of the robots, by a rise of human population, by a rise of tides and temperatures related to global climate change. The rise of artificial intelligence and robots challenges us to ask, are we human beings only valuable to the extent that our labor is of benefit to the bottom lines of corporations? And if so, then as artificial and robots displace us, are we just going to be the barbarians at the gate? Uh, Uh, The rise of human population challenges us to ask if increasing numbers of people mean that there is increasing pressure um, amongst dividing the resources that are limited amongst uh, an increasing number of people that will allow each person to live a dignified life. That's complicated. Let's save that for next week. Uh, The rise of tides and temperatures means of global climate change means that all of this will be more difficult and perhaps reach crisis points um, sooner. And so as we pursue world community for such a time as this, I'm reminded about the slogan about what liberal internationalism might mean from the perspective of of we United States citizens. You know, sort of that instead of simply make America great again, liberal internationalism might mean make America great Britain again, right? There are, of course, at least two major red flags with that prospect. The first red flag is from the past. There could be advantages to making America Great Britain again, universal health care, get that done. And maybe that parliamentary system actually wasn't so bad after all, but, you know, that's another topic for another day probably. Uh, But history also reminds us that the specter of British colonialism, that didn't always go so great the first time around, right? The second red flag is from the present. An internationalist slogan like Make America Great Britain Again is highly ironic, of course, in an age of Brexit. Only months before Donald Trump was to ride a wave of nativist resentment to become the 45th president of the United States, citizens of the United Kingdom voted by a slim margin just 51.9%, right, less than 2%, uh, to withdraw from the European Union in early 2019. So that's coming really soon in like late March 2019. That's a major shift within the United Kingdom from internationalism toward isolationism. 
as the Indian essayist um, Pankraj Mishra has traced in his important book, Age of Anger, both Brexit and the election of President Trump are signs of how demagogues can manipulate populations who find themselves increasingly cynical, bored, and discontent. And in our increasingly globalized world, we misunderstand these events if we see them in isolation. Uh, Instead, we need to consider the ways that both Trump's election and Brexit are trends similar to what else is going on in the world. Things like the election of a Hindu nationalist, um, Narendra Modi, as the prime minister of India. The election of the authoritarian Recep um, Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, The far-right politician, Marine Le Pen, Pen, winning 33% of the vote in France. In France, people, Uh, we need to be honest about the situation at hand, that though China, though market-friendly, seems further from democracy than before and closer to an expansionist nationalism. Uh, The experiment with free market capitalism that seemed so promising in Russia has spawned a kleptocratic empire under Vladimir Putin. It has brought to power explicitly anti-Semitic regimes in Poland and Hungary, although if you've been watching headlines, there were major democratic protests in Hungary just yesterday. But it still remains the case that authoritarian leaders, anti-democratic backlashes, and right-wing extremism, even where they don't lead the politics, they in many ways define the politics of Austria, France, the United States, India, Israel, Thailand, the Philippines, Turkey, and other countries today. All that being said, and as important as our present moment is, I don't want to unduly extrapolate from our civil, uh, extrapolate our civilization's likely future based only on current trends in the world today. So as a point of comparison, let's consider a few other relatively recent historical moments and how we might have hypothesized quite a different future from those. If we were, for instance, to turn back time a little more than 100 years to the late 19th century, you would have seen in many Unitarian pulpits, like this one, people preaching a a profound social optimism. Our Unitarian late 19th century forebears were very optimistic about the hopes of achieving utopia in the near future. They often, uh, you know, a world community with enough for everyone. Uh, Katie opened us with a chalice lighting from Gandhi. Do you know that saying, there's enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed, right? Uh, But many of our 19th century predecessors speculated the literal quote that you saw all the time was, the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. That was what they really thought was sort of uh, coming out of the Industrial Revolution. They didn't know about climate change, right? Uh, But the stark truth is that these utopian social hopes about inevitable progress They were dashed in the 20th century, first on the rocks of the First World War as we saw the horrors of what technology allowed us to do to one another, such as with machine guns, uh, continuing through World War II, the Holocaust, Vietnam, uh, September 11th, Rwandan genocide. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to be unduly depressing today. I know that some of you are familiar with writers like Steven Pinker, who remind us of the many reasons for hope and the many ways in which things have gotten better for very many people on this planet. I'll get to some of that in my June sermon on utopianism then and now. But my invitation this morning is for us to pay attention to those oscillations over time, you know, profound hope in the 19th century, swinging back to profound um, pessimism in the wake of World War I, swinging back to profound optimism in like the early 90s, swinging back to some pessimism today, swinging back to the Women's March and March for a lot. Do you, do you see what, I, you know, these, these moments go back and forth. Um, 
For instance, I was 11 years old in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell, when that was around the time I was first starting to pay attention to politics. And at that time, the rising tides that we, of authoritarianism that we see today, three decades later, was very difficult to predict then. Instead, you saw people talking about the end of history, right, that we had reached this end of history with the Berlin Wall falling and that we were just going to, the triumph of liberal democracy was just going to um, carry throughout the globe. So in the early 90s, uh, instead of that really depressing list that I gave you earlier, let me give you a more optimistic list that was the case then. With the collapse of Soviet communism, the universal triumph of liberal capitalism and democracy again seemed assured. The words like globalization and the internet, they were um, met with more hope than with anxiety uh, as they entered into common speech. You know, thanks Mark Zuckerberg for screwing that up for us, but uh, no, that's not fair. Uh, American advisors were rushing to Moscow to facilitate Russia's makeover into a liberal democracy. China and India were opening up their economics to investment and trade. The enlarged European Union was coming into being. Peace was declared in Northern Ireland. Nelson Mandela was ending his long walk to freedom. The Dalai Lama was in Apple's Think Different commercials, and it seemed only a matter of time before Tibet, too, would be free. The larger point is that none of these various trends, neither movements toward a more open society then, nor movements toward authoritarianism now, neither are inevitable. Progress and liberty are not inevitable, but neither are fascism and world war. I have to, we have to do the work of building the world we dream about, though, if we are to turn our dreams into deeds. So why take the time to sketch um, these uh, broad strokes about the inevitability of history? This sermon's supposed to be about human rights, right? The main reason is that human rights, too, are not inevitable. Don't get me wrong, human rights are a tremendously good idea in many ways, but the open secret of the human rights movement is that the concept of human rights is not a transcendental ideal that was handed down from on high. Human rights are a social construct. In the terminology of the historian, the world historian Yuval Harari, human rights are a fiction, so to speak. Uh, they are a particularly good piece of fiction, uh, but they are a fiction. They are something we humans made up, nonetheless. Of course, here's another open secret. There's a pretty strong case that all of ethics and morality is a social construction, which the extent you've studied history and traveled becomes obvious fairly quickly. Here's the way the political science professor Jack Donnelly puts it in his widely regarded textbook, Human Rights, in its third edition with Cornell University Press. He writes that human rights ultimately rest on a social decision, a social decision to act as if such things existed, and then through our social action directed by these rights to make real the world that they envision. This does not make human rights arbitrary in the sense that they rest on choices that might just as well have been random, nor are they merely conventional, roughly the way that driving on the left is enforced in Britain and driving on the right is enforced in the United States. Uh, rather, like all social practices, human rights come with and in an important sense require justifications, but those justifications appeal to foundations that are ultimately a matter of agreement or assumption rather than a proof. Um, so while there is no guarantee that human rights will be respected, there is immense value for advocating for a world order based on respect for human rights. So although, again, human rights are not inevitable, they are, I would invite you to consider, inalienable. 
There is nothing that you can do to be more worthy of human rights and nothing you can do to be less worthy of them. Now, we can and do have people that don't respect human rights. Many of them are leaders in those countries that I was listing earlier. Uh, But if you do support human rights, then they are universal, equal rights for all human beings without exception. So when I use that word not inevitable but inalienable, see that word alien in the middle. There is nothing you can do to make human rights alien to you. They are just in you. They are granted to all human beings, period. As with our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, period. At the root of human rights is that all human beings, no matter what, deserve minimum conditions for a dignified life. At the risk of belaboring the point, I want to emphasize that this concept, this value that could seem incredibly obvious to we 21st century Western liberals, has been far far from obvious to most human beings who have lived uh, in the course of time. Historically, the prevailing view has much more been frequently has much more frequently been that the ones with dignity, uh, the ones with intrinsic worth, were not everyone, but the elite few, the royalty, the aristocracy, those at the top of various political, social, and religious hierarchies. The rest of us, the masses, the commoners, the hoi polloi—that's all of us. Uh, uh, were seen paternalistically as someone to be provided for as a passive recipient of benefits rather than a creative agent with the right to, to shape one's life. The implication was that we commoners, we who lacked intrinsic dignity and worth, should be grateful for anything we got because we were owed nothing. You can see how this worldview continues to underlie debates about whether various social safety nets are, quote, entitlements, Right? Uh, you know, or are they universally needed to ensure a dignified human life for everyone? You know, is it about the takers and the job creators? You know, who gets to frame these debates? Indeed, scholars have shown that although there are various limited precursors to what we think of as human rights today, our modern conception of universal international human rights for every human being really dates back about 70 years. That's when we started telling this fiction. We started this social construction with the passage of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. And it was written precisely in, so when you think about 1948, what happened a few years before? The end of World War II. Uh, it, was, it is helpful to remember that it was precisely the authoritarianism, the fascism, and the horror of the Second World War that so starkly demonstrated how inevitable human rights were not uh, that we needed to help ensure them, basic human rights for all people. Um, and I find it incredibly significant to be part of a religious movement that draws its first principle directly from both the beginning of the preamble and the beginning of Article 1 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It is not a coincidence that our UU first principle is the same as Article 1 of the, UU, of the Declaration of Human Rights in the preamble. The preamble reads that, quote, the recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of justice, peace, and freedom in the world, or lack thereof, right? Uh, And the opening of Article 1 says that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience. We love those words as you use, right? Reason and conscience. And should act toward one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Hashtag it was 1948, right? It was before second wave feminism, so hashtag sexism. Sorry. Uh, so all that sounds pretty UU, or should I say that UUism sounds pretty human rightsy, right? 
So in light of these ideas we have been tracing, how might we best pursue our high bar of our UU6 principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all? One proposal, um, often we just talk about these things and don't talk about what would really bring them about. So to the extent that the things I'm about to list seem outlandish is to the, the extent to which we're not prepared to really pursue our goal of world community. It would involve, most scholars say, something like a global Marshall Plan. So the Marshall Plan, many of you will remember, is, um, sim- is the economic aid that we gave to uh, European, Western European economies that have been devastated by World War II that we gave to help rebuild those economies. Uh, so we need a global Marshall Plan that would almost necessarily include a blanket forgiveness of third world debt. Uh, it would require a tax on international financial transactions that would benefit the global south, abolition of offshore financial centers that offer tax havens for wealthy individuals and corporations, implementation of stringent global environmental agreements, and implementation of a more equitable global development agenda. These are obviously high bars to reach, but if we were to have any hope, again, of reaching that goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not for some, but for all, I invite you to consider that it will require more than the bumper sticker slogan of think globally, act locally. While that practice of acting locally, all politics is local, that'll continue to remain vital, the goal of world community would require of us not only to think globally, but to act locally. Act globally, sorry, to act globally. For instance, it might require global welfare paid for maybe by a global income tax, but beyond that, we would actually need a global wealth tax if we're going to be serious about this. Along these lines, a Yale University professor of history and laws recently published a compelling book. If you're interested in one book that would take you kind of further in exploring these ideas, I would recommend the book Not Enough, Human Rights in a Unequal World. It was released um, just recently by Harvard University Press. Regarding the title of this book, you may recall that I said earlier that as with our UU first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, at the root of human rights is that all human beings, no matter what, deserve minimal conditions for a dignified life. That is a great goal. But I'd never really thought about it this way before until I read this book by Moyne, that he admires what he calls this sturdy floor of the human rights movement, a sturdy floor for all human beings, a basic minimum for everyone. He says, that's great. But he has come to view this goal, this goal, as in the title of his book, as not enough. He has come to see human rights as the necessary but, um, not, but insufficient condition for um, creating the world we dream about. Moyne highlights that human rights, even perfectly realized human rights, are compatible, it turns out, with not only inequality, but with radical inequality. Because you can have a basic minimum for everyone and still an elite few with um, way too much. So he challenges us to wrestle with the question of whether we can truly have a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all if we also allow not just income inequality, but extreme income inequality, sort of a new gilded age that we find ourselves in. This is not to say that we need to have complete egalitarianism, that everyone needs to have exactly the same amount. It is, in all likelihood, profit motive will continue to be a major factor in whatever world community we build. But he is saying that extreme inequality is arguably incompatible with peace, liberty, and justice for all, because extreme inequality puts money and other resources in too few hands. 
Moyne's argument is that we need not only a sturdy floor of human rights to ensure a basic minimum of dignity for all, but also a ceiling at some point and of some sort to protect, to protect against extreme inequality. He calls us to, quote, save ourselves from our low ambitions. Now, typically, you use are not guilty of low ambitions, but collectively, he's calling us to set ourselves higher if we are to ever have any chance of building the world we dream about, of turning our dreams into deeds. So as we continue to discern, how might we individually and collectively feel called to act within our spheres of influence? Uh, It's appropriate on this Sunday in which we've been reflecting on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, as a response to the horrors of World War II that we are also celebrating our annual UU ritual of flower communion. The practice of flower communion reminds us not only of the risk, the importance of working for justice, but the risk of working for justice. Flower Communion originated in 1921 in a Unitarian congregation in Prague, which at the time was the capital of Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic. Under the leadership of its minister, Norbert Chopik, it grew into the largest Unitarian congregation in the world at the time. It had a membership in 1932 of more than 3,000. But in 1941, Chopik was arrested by the Nazis on charges of treason. A year later, he was executed at Dachau. Chopik was martyred for standing up for individual liberty in the face of fascism. And the continuation of flower communion today that he created affirms the heart of the original ritual that as no two flowers are alike, so too no two individuals are alike. Uh, We each have a contribution to make. Together, the different um, flowers form a beautiful bouquet, and our common bouquet would not be the same without each person's unique gifts. Uh, And thus, it is with the beloved community of our congregation. It is lessened, we are lessened, when any one of us is absent. Closing words. That I'm aware, obviously, that what I've said this morning is pretty political. I'm fairly unapologetic about that. Uh, I think it's important for us to be political but not partisan. Political is just about, comes from the Greek word polis, it means city, right? How are we going to organize our governance? Uh, And that, uh, to me, I think it's important, I've been teaching UU history this term um, at uh, Wesley Theological Seminary to four upcoming future UU ministers, and I've mostly been teaching the Unitarian half, and my colleague Barbara Queeman has been teaching the Universalist half of our history, but I think it's actually sometimes the Universalist half, the Unitarians too, but let's talk about Universalism for now. that show us how and why we must be political in a certain sense because of, of who we are as Unitarian Universalists, that we, you know, in, in the 18th century, in the 1700s, Universalism started as a rejection of hell, right, in, in, the, in the next world. But it quickly shifted in the 19th century to become about loving the hell out of this world. And, the, and, it, and it manifested in very particular ways. Historically, it manifested uh, in, so in the same way there was a fight for universal salvation. And that was an incredibly bold and provocative thing to be doing in the late 1700s. Uh, then in the same way, that shifted as it became secularized and about this world in the 19th century became an, adv- an uh, advocacy for universal freedom, right? That so many of our forebears were involved in the abolitionist movement for freedom for African-American people. And then in the 19th, early 20th century, that that same universalism manifested in many of our ancestors being involved in the women's suffrage movement, right? Universal vote for all people, which of course was not complete with the 19th Amendment because many 
so that was good for white women, but we still had work to do in the civil rights movement to make sure all people, all women, had a right to vote and, and Voting Rights Act, which still has work to do today. Uh, then we can see the way in which that same sort of universal right, universal human rights, uh, led to many of our congregations, including many of you, being involved in the early 21st century with same-sex marriage rights, universal marriage for all people. There's still work to be done around trans liberation, around disability rights, and so for everyone to really live a dignified life. But I invite you to see what we're, that when I talk about things like world community being minimally founded on pillars like you know, universal health care for all people from birth and universal access to education for every person, which can, is both humanities and science, but also vocational training. That, so, you know, universal access to education and universal basic income so that everyone has a basic minimum. There's a reason I'm using those words universal, right? It is deeply connected to our universalism and deeply connected to seeing every person as having inherent worth and dignity and what it would really take to do that. So, uh, and that's the, so, and that, a lot of that's the systemic, the political stuff, and some of you may know the quote from Cornel West that intimacy is what love looks like in private, but justice is what love looks like in public, right? Advocating for just public policy. And so that's, so we need to do both, right? So as we continue to advocate um, collectively on, on that systemic level of justice in public, continue also with each person you encounter to continue your journey in love to care for one another, to care for this one earth, to do justice and make peace. That as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.